And now, the moment your career has been waiting for. Chris Connor and Life Science Marketing Radio presents Buddy Scalera. That's awesome. So I love it when the guest introduces themselves with a yeah. professional radio voice. Yeah, like yeah, that's that was a real professional. That was like, let me drop one octave and see how this sounds. <laughs> so let me tell everybody who we're talking to today. Some of them will know you for sure. Buddy Scalera is the senior director of content strategy at the Medicines Company, and he's got 17 years of experience in pharmaceutical marketing for both consumers and healthcare professionals. He's a noted speaker and the author of six books on visual storytelling, which we should get into a little bit later, and a co-host on the RX Digital Marketing Podcast for Healthcare Marketers. And I'm sure everything he shares today will be equally relevant for life science marketers. Buddy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. You have a great show, and I am honored to be on your show. You're providing a valuable service and really pushing conversation forward in our industry. Thank you for letting me be on your show. Well, thank you very much. This is going to be fun. We uh, were introduced by Alan Gerstein, so a previous guest on this podcast and someone I work with closely at the ACPLS. And I had you on my list of potential guests for a long time, but I, uh, I wasn't sure of what topic because there are so many things we could have talked about. So what got the ball rolling on this podcast was I was listening to uh, PNR with Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose right after the Intelligent Content Conference where I, you were a speaker. And Joe was raving about your talk where you described a content strategist as being at the center of a six-ring circus and coordinating the efforts of everybody in those six rings. So first of all, what are those six areas that a content strategist is juggling? Well, I, I think um, it's probably worth starting from the point where, you know, the center of the ring, right? Because I think what we have to start to think about is what are you trying to accomplish? If you're trying to accomplish creating content, right? You need somebody who can work with you to create that content and at one time, when there was an agency model where there was an AOR and you had a team that was devoted for some period of time, year, years, um, there might have been an account manager, a brand manager, somebody who would coordinate all of those efforts. And, and you know that that model has been evolving over the years. And agencies are often in a model where they're project-based. And uh, the longevity of the team is, is often based just on the statement of work. So it is difficult to coordinate that. Now, often that will fall on the side of the brand manager. Now, the brand manager um, has a lot of other things to coordinate. And content is the manifestation of strategy. And it could be marketing strategy. It could be business strategy. It could be almost anything. But content is the manifestation of that. Now, Chris, what we have is this emerging role of content strategist. And the content strategist is in a position where they work with other strategists. Um, and the brand team and the brand manager needs to focus on other things. And now we have content specialists. And since almost all content is multi-channel and most content has a digital component, at this point, you need someone who's coordinating that. And I, I argue that content strategy is a unifying strategy that unifies the other strict six relevant strategies for content creation. Now this doesn't, this isn't all marketing strategies, but if you think about the types of content, 
they group in twos, and the first two are design strategy and editorial copy strategy. Uh, those are the traditional ones that agencies are generally really good at and win awards. Um, so design strategy, they'll cover look and feel, UI, branding, uh, your editorial will be tone of voice, uh, language, uh, reading level, components like that. Now, content strategist doesn't replace them. They simply connect them with the other strategies. For example, measurement strategy. So I, 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 I ran copy. And often at the end of a project, you would, you would close the project out and maybe come back and have to do a phase two content refresh. But in the old days, we would be on a brand a long time and we would be able to look at the analytics and say, wow, well, how did this content perform? Well, in lieu of that, you have an analytics team and all they do is give you a binary metric or some sort of simple metric and say, well, how many people hit that content? That'll give you a binary metric, some sort of metric that says, well, yes, that content was hit. Did it help us reach our goals? Did it, did it change behavior to make people feel greater affinity to the brand? Did it have them take action? So content strategy makes sure that um, we are understanding the goals of the design and that editorial team and then are feeding it back to them. So that's three circles right there. Now, another circle is in media strategy. Media strategy, in a lot of ways, is just about pushing as many people through a funnel as possible, right? Uh, and you don't just want to push people, you want to push the right people, people who are the qualified leads, people ready to take action, or even the right publication, the media strategy, uh, the media relations. So you have paid and you have uh, earned media coming around the horn. You have content distribution strategy. Where else is that content going to be repurposed? What channels can it be syndicated? How do you strategize with that, knowing what the intent of editorial is, the plan for design is, what you're measuring, what you're paying for, and then how you're repurposing. And then the sixth circle is content engineering strategy. So um, I always say that content strategy and content engineering strategy are like two wings on a plane. Plane flies a lot better with two wings. Um, and content strategy is the what, what do we want to get out there? And the content engineering strategy is the how, like how will we get it to the audience and the amazing thing was for years this was done by it we think wanted a website you know you give it 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 would get it up on a web we wanted a mobile all right it but it is now focused on a lot different goals you now have a content engineering team that specializes in just ensuring that the content fills all the other needs is coordinated with the measurement is coordinated with the paid media through the distribution and now if you envision this you've got content strategy in the center as a coordinating strategy and all we do now is coordinate these other strategies. And here's the important thing. As peers, we are people deeply enmeshed in the understanding of how content is created. What editorial and design are trying to accomplish? Often because we came from that world. Measurement and media, now they're our peers, are our friends, and we work with them. Distribution and engineering, again, these are our peers, and we work with them. And now we all have a grok-level understanding of how does this content work? And it satisfies the goal of the brand manager and the branding team and the marketing team who developed that strategy. But a content strategist is sitting at the center of a six ring circus. I love it. Yeah. So you've, you've covered a lot that I uh, was going to ask you about already. But, so let's go through those Sorry, one by one. Sorry, me up and I go, Chris. No, no, that's good. Um, now everybody knows, it, you know, now we have a framework for this discussion of the framework. 
So let's let's dig into each one of those things. And I'm going to start with copy and editorial because that's uh, you know that's what most people are thinking of when they think of content strategy. Uh, they're just thinking, what are we going to make? And the people I work with typically, you know, that's their biggest challenge. Well, it's their first challenge, I should say, maybe not their biggest. <laughs> what are we going to make? How are we going to make it? But what when you look around, what do you see? as the places where marketers are falling down in terms of content or copy and editorial and what, what can they do about it? Um, it's a good question. And, and I think the, the tougher question is um, how are you satisfying the needs of your target customer? The customer has a need and the reason they're coming to your brand is because they have a problem and that problem needs to be solved. And in healthcare, it could be a wellness problem. You know, somebody has a health issue um, or condition and the symptoms or the, the disease or whatever it is, is preventing them from doing something that they want to do. You know, their health is a challenge and that in storytelling, let's just take it to storytelling, is considered a conflict. And then in a story, a conflict requires a resolution. So a brand is a resolution to a conflict because everybody is the hero of their own personal story. And I think the biggest challenge that we see, Chris, is that copy people and writers are being tasked with being storytellers now. Be a brand storyteller. And everybody thinks, oh, I'm a brand storyteller. Let me tell the autobiography of my brand. Um, and yeah. unless the autobiography of your brand is the solution to my problem, I don't care. right? I, I want to feel better and I want to be on with my life. And I interact with brands Every day, like you and I are talking into microphones. I needed a way to talk to you. So my conflict was, how do I talk into my computer? And the resolution was, well, I bought this microphone. Problem solved. I don't care much more about the founder's history or personal life or um, their childhoods. Don't care. All I wanted to know is, did you solve my problem? And if this microphone breaks and this microphone solved my problem the last time, I might be a repeat customer. Uh, so I think copywriters right now are tasked with trying to be storytellers and they think they're supposed to tell the story of the brand when in reality, they need to integrate into the story that matters, which is the story of the user, because everybody's the hero of their own story. Absolutely. Yeah. So we might come back to that one a little bit um, on the storytelling and because I'm, I'm going to ask you, well, let's let me ask you right now. So how do we avoid... Um, even if we're telling the right story, which is the customer story, how do we avoid sounding like, hey, you have this, you know, you're good at something or um, I'm going to take it to the life sciences. You know, you're good at doing X, Y, Z, but you have this problem, ABC. And if you use our product, you'll live happily ever after without having it sound quite so formulaic. Is there a way to do that? Well, when I would run a, a copy team and we were trying to decide what we wanted to write, um, often it started in the early days with features and benefits. Uh, and you would think, okay, well, you know, what, what is it about this particular product that will be appealing? And let's, let's write the heck out of that. Um, but then as time went on and we really started to analyze that this was not advertising, this was marketing. And marketing is answering somebody's question and advertising is about selling and marketing is about telling. And I just want to tell you why this satisfies your need. And maybe my product doesn't satisfy your need. So I write honest content for wherever you are in your journey. So we think about a user journey. And, and a lot of people mistake a funnel for a user journey. And it's not. A funnel is literally um, brand focused looking at potential customers. 
whereas a user journey is seen through the eyes of the user, right? So we just talked about, you know, I had a need. My conflict was to get a microphone to talk with you, and that solved my problem. But you think about larger user journeys. Where are they? Are they in the earliest stage of discovery? What do you need to know about that brand in the earliest stage of discovery? Then as you go a little further down the journey and you say, well, that, you know, now I know what I need. I need, a, in this case, a microphone. What do I want to do now? Well, now I want to compare it against the other microphones I could buy. And then last but not least, I go to want to buy it. Now I, you know, decided what I want. Well, tell me what I need to know to buy it. And then last but not least is how do I use it, right? What happens if there's new patches or updates or something else I want to new? You know what? Content, one piece of content won't satisfy all of those needs, Chris. You're going to need three, four, five pieces of content to answer just that for one person or one persona, right? So the question you ask is, you know, you break it into personas, who are your customers, find out what they want to know at any point in their journey and write to that. So often copywriters are tasked with writing one piece of copy that appeals to every stage of the user journey and that will never work. It has never worked and will never work. Uh, yeah, I, I've never heard that problem defined before. So the problem I run into more typically is that they have, they create a lot of content, but none of it works together to go across the journey. You're talking now about people who are making single pieces of content that, that do go across the journey, but that isn't the right way to do it either. And the other thing I like that you pointed out is, you know, the, the after the purchase content. So what happens if this thing breaks? How do I get a new one? Or how, how do I use this thing and be successful with it? That's right. so important. Let's talk about um, design strategy. So you talked about user experience, look and feel, tone of voice. Um, how are we trying to influence audience behavior with design strategy? Or what are the elements? How do those elements tie together? So, you know, well, it's a great question. I mean, design and copy go to right, they're meant to go together. Um, but think about again, answering the question of the user. Uh, and I like to use airlines as an example. Um, when you go to a lot of airline websites, um, they are answering a question that you don't need answered. They show an airplane on a tarmac. I assume that as an airline, you have airplanes, right? <laughs> and, and unless I'm an aficionado, and I'm like, oh, that's an Airbus A80? Fantastic. You know what I care about, Chris? I care, like, am I going to be comfortable? You know, I'm, I'm planning a long trip. I, I, I went to Shanghai last year, and legroom and comfort was part of my decision process. Them showing me the outside of the plane did not answer my question. I knew they had planes. Um, that was why I was there. So, I, you know, as a design strategy, you know, what information would make me want to fly your airline and... You know, show me the food, show me the legroom, show me the comfort, show me what other features and benefits. And I know we go to features and benefits a lot. Why Why would I want to choose you? There's any number of airlines that would have gotten me to Shanghai for this, you know, immense trip. And I think design can answer lots of questions. And I think the challenge sometimes is that we get into this abstract metaphorical design sense. And I've seen a lot of designs that will say, are showing a tree because trees show strength and the roots show that we have roots in the community and the branches show that we're reaching high and the one leaf falling shows that we are ready for spring and yet also prepared for... And you're like, what? It's a tree. 
You didn't <laughs> answer my question. Tell me about what I care about. Right. And some you laugh, but like you've probably been in the room and you nod your head and you go, really? You How, how many hours did you waste on that? Because that didn't answer the question of the customer. Um, and I understand metaphorical design and, and where it's valuable. At the same time, I also understand that people are often going to your website um, not for a quote-unquote experience. Because if I want an experience, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to BuzzFeed. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go to a place where experience matters. When I go to a brand.com website, I'm looking for answers to a question. And I think yeah. that sometimes they forget the, that it's sometimes it's it's function. It's just function. I need you to give me my answer so I can move on with my life. I, I really appreciate the airline example. <laughs> but it's a one for personal reasons that I'm sure everyone can relate to. But also, um, yeah, you see a picture of an airplane and what it communicates is we have a metal tube that holds a ton of people. <laughs> Right. But when you yeah, say I'm why looking do I for want comfort, your tube? Well, why your tube, right? <laughs> show me the spacing between the seats. Show me what I'm going to eat. Show me, you know, how you, you know, what I get to watch while I'm on the airline. Um, and, you know, and then all the things around scheduling and how easy it is to figure out the right collection of flight. Brands should think about, you know, that as part of that journey and how they make that easier. Yeah, and like, you know, what what can design do? You know, if, if you have an outlet, especially when you know, I was going to Shanghai, international outlets between every seat, which is what the airline that I flew did, I think it was United, um, That's that's that was a good piece of information. And you showed me with a picture, you know, outlet between every seat. That's a, that's a good thing when you're on a flight that long. Yeah. All right, let's go to measurement. I am not, you know, a super expert on measurement. I, you know, doing research for my own site, I ran across this guy named Avinash Kaushik, who mm-hmm. has a great framework for understanding analytics, um, particularly around Google Analytics and how to set it up. But he also very much talks about, you know, how you think about, you know, what your business goals are and what the KPIs are and, and how to come up with your targets for those KPIs and so on. So, um, do you have a favorite approach for deciding what and how to measure your content based on business goals? Yeah, I'm glad you brought brought up Avanish. I, I had I had the good fortune of seeing him very early in, um, in I think when his first book was coming out, uh, and I got to see him speak at Google, and he really did influence the way I and the rest of my team considered analytics. You know, usually it was just a blind rush to get as many quote unquote, hits to the homepage, right? And he dispelled that because what he was trying to point out was there is content on certain interior pages that is indicative of uh, a place in somebody's user journey, right? So if I'm early in my user journey, late in my user journey, like you would even acknowledged, I'm actually a customer. Um, we're going to look at different content and that different content can help us to understand who our customer is and what their behavior is. So um, I think Avanish helped me to understand that the website measurement is a snapshot in time of what happened, what just happened, maybe in real time. But it's a great tool for helping you to understand where you need to go next. And if your website has areas where more, um, let's say you had a list of publications, right? We, we work in pharma. Let's, let's make it real. And you have a pub list of publications on a site for healthcare professionals. Let's say there's 12 of them. 
and you look at those and three of them are getting more clicks than others. Would that be valuable information to feed back to your marketing and branding team? Would it be valuable information to send over to your sales team if you had a live sales sure. force walking around with iPad, right? You, you, can, you don't have to tell them what to do. You know, they might be trained salespeople and they can utilize and digest that information. And furthermore, you might be able to slice it. The, the sales force might say, you know what? The Southwest team needs a slice of that. And you go, wow, look at this. All over the country, these top three. But in the Southwest, it's these three. That is a great way to use analytics. And it informs other things that you're doing. It validates other things. So, so many people, Chris, just use it as a snapshot for what's happening on the website. But it can be used for so much more. And I really think that as you create content, the content has an, an intent, as does the, you know, the copy and the design uh, as the manifestation of content. Um, how does your analytics pull through what you intended for that to do? And then what other ahas can you glean out of your analytics? There's a lot. And I think a lot of people just aren't tuned into that. And, and reading Avinash and seeing him speak helped me to understand that we can do more with analytics, um, prospectively looking forward uh, than anything else, because it really does inform what people are doing and then where you can go going forward. Right. What I like there is talking about how using analytics, you know, knowing what's working beyond, you know, being able to show your boss what an awesome job you did this quarter. <laughs> right. And actually um, taking, you know, the analytics and what you learned from it about what's working and and thinking, how can we use the fact that we now know this about, you know, this segment of our customers and, and yeah. use it. So, you know, I always like to tell my clients, like, don't measure anything if you're not going to use it. It's just a waste of time. So, but if you can figure well, out what to yeah. measure and then actually act on that, change your behavior based on what you learned, then it's worth measuring. Yeah, people gave you information; you can use it. It's yours. It's your data, and and also, you know, break up the data according to what makes the most sense. You know, your about page, in all likelihood, on a product or a brand or a solution, will probably be the most visited page on your site because people want to know about. Um, there are pages like um, a CRM registration, somebody opted in for your newsletter. Statistically, you should have fewer people going to that page. And people often look at analytics as having a false positive. Oh, everybody went to the about page. Let's do two about pages. No, 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 no. It's an about page because most people are just learning about your product. There's not a lot who are ready to sign up and surrender personal information to you. Um, statistically, you can probably back your way into how many you should be getting versus how many you are getting based on previous data. But really, at the end of the day, you have to know balance-wise what percentage of people should be getting to that opt-in registration page and a ratio to how many people are going to your about page. And that could give you additional information about the way your site is cross-linked in the performance of your site. I really like that. I mean, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, your about page is kind of a it's a very non-selective general measure of interest and then using that as a denominator and then asking of the people who go to the about page, how many of them move on to something eventually and get to, you know, or a gated page or something and do something. And that's a metric I would not have thought of, but you can tell if you're doing better or worse based on, on that. Yeah. 
So a analytics, if you if you know what your content's supposed to be, and you've broken it up and tagged it appropriately, you can actually um, get a pretty good sense of how well your site should be performing versus how it is performing. And there are a lot of experts out there. I am not one of them who work with predictive analytics and tell you what you should be able to predict and are you performing at or below level. And that's that's great stuff. I, I'm not a predictive analyst, analytics person. I'm not a data scientist. But as a content strategist, I try to work with those people and say, here is the information. What should we be getting? Right. And that that's where we come back to. That's what a content strategist should do. I'm not going to try and replace you. I'm going to enable you with the information and intent that I have and then come back to me and tell me what the answer is. Yeah. And I, I think um, I'm just thinking about this in the context of companies I've worked with. And I, I'm going to go back to your very specific example about the you know registration page over the about page, because a lot of times you look at something and you and you maybe you publish a new piece of content and you want to set a goal for it. But you go, how do we know where to even set that goal? It's a guess. But if you have other registration pages and look at the ratio to the about page, now you can you know what your best ones are doing. So let's make that ratio the benchmark for a good piece of content. And, and you, now you've set a obviously target. you know a lot. You know you know a lot about data analytics. You probably know more about analytics than me. No, Chris. I don't. I think <laughs> you just learned every the only piece that I, I don't know. It's just, it just happened <laughs> to be on my mind. And, and but because that problem comes up of how do we set a target? How do we? We're just pulling numbers out of the air. If we say we'd like to get this many downloads of a piece of content, but it, you probably have existing downloads and comparing them to the number of people that visit your about page or some other widely visited page gives you a first guess at your target. I just, I like, that's a great idea. Well, I remember, I remember not too long ago, somebody had said to me, how many followers should we have on our Twitter account? And I said, well, I don't know how many you want. And he said, well, I, I, I want as many as I can get. And I said, well, you know, um, that's, you know, that's a good marketer's aspiration, as many as I can get. Um, and I said, well, I don't know how many is right. And and I, and I might have the statistic off. You, you might, you know, name check me at, uh, in, the, in the credits later on, on on what the actual number is. But I think about 17% of the total U.S. population is on Twitter. And some smaller percentage of healthcare professionals is also on Twitter. And then if you take your total population, let's say, let's say, just for argument's sake, just to make it a nice round number, 10% of all healthcare professionals are on Twitter. And then you say, um, we are in um, cardiology. Okay, how many cardiologists are there? Then say, what's 10% of that? And then say, what percentage should we expect that would follow a pharmaceutical brand? Okay, well, we know where our position is in the marketplace. We know what percentage we have in the marketplace. And all of a sudden, you come to a number and you go, well, geez, that's only, you know, 3,000. And you go, well, we're at uh, 1,500 followers. Now we have a goal. Yeah. Right? And and then they say like, well, geez, only, you know, we only have 1,500 followers. And I go like, but I don't know, maybe they're the right ones. You know, maybe they're the right people who are tuned into what you have to say. And percentage-wise, will Twitter go up? Probably. I mean, in all likelihood, they, it will. And then you just have to think, okay, am I positioning my company to be in the right place when more cardiologists come online and a greater percentage and we go up to 11% of all cardiologists. What's that target number? That's something that you can give to your analytics team and have them work backwards to a number and they say, you know, here's where you should be popping open a bottle of champagne and here's where you should be updating your resume on LinkedIn, <laughs> you know? 
little bit of a little bit of backwards analysis helps to know where you should be. And you can also do that on your website. Like how many registrations should we be having? I don't know. Let's let's start with the total population and work our way backwards. And I, I, I don't know how to do that. And I've worked with people that do it, so don't give me credit for it. But you know, I've worked with people enough to explain, well, that's how you get to it. And I go, cool. I mean, I'm sure it's more complex than that, Chris, but that was how they simplified it for me. And I went, cool, get me a number. Yeah, it makes total sense. And you know, you get that number, let's say it's 3000. Then there's two questions I would imagine you'd ask. One might just be great. That's our goal. It shouldn't be that hard. Or otherwise say, you know what, 3000 Twitter followers isn't enough for us to reach our other goal. Like it, it won't make a dent in our bigger picture. Like, should we even do that? Right. So it could be good news or bad news, but at least you can make a decision. Yeah. But when you when you're thinking about that and you're thinking about how that fits into the other strategy that we'll probably talk about, which is, um, you know, media and content distribution, you know, knowing where you should be in the grand scheme of things will help you to know if you're moving there and what your proxy measurements are. Right. Hey, we attended a conference and we got this many Twitter followers, this many more uh, visits to the area and this many registrations. How did we do? Right. And, and if you're just using a single point of measurement, you know, we went to a conference and this is what we did last conference. And this is what we did this conference. You know, you're 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 missing the opportunity to really do uh, deeper analytics and know what pushed the needle, because at the end of the year, and you know this as well as I do, um, almost invariably, somebody didn't spend through their budget. And there is anywhere from $10,000 to $110,000 that has to be spent in December. And if you've done your measurements, you know exactly where to put that money. If you don't, you're just going to throw it out and go like, oh, I don't know. Let's buy a banner ad. Yeah, let's go into media. So you talk about it. You call it paid media and media relations. Is is media relations different from earned media? Um, I think so, yeah. I, I think um, – I think – it's, it's part of earned media and, and media strategy to me is a representation of what we used to consider media. And there are specialists in this. They understand editorial and they understand where you have to buy ads. And I think that there are people who really know their stuff here. And I, I encountered them when I was at the agency and I encountered them when I was a journalist because I used to be a journalist. And I think you need to have a strategy. And it's not just getting media coverage. And I'll give you a, for instance, I, you know, I've seen, um, brand marketers show up in our industry publications like MM&M or some other industry publication. And that's great for them. But does that, does that help the doctor who is considering writing a prescription and what drug to prescribe for their patient? Um, if they're reading MMM, maybe, but docs are not reading MMM. They're reading the publications that matter to them. So if there's a finite amount of budget, you need to have a strategy for how you're going to use that, right? Because it's not it's not infinite scale. If there's a media public relations and media relations team, there's only so many phone calls and emails they can send out, and there's only so many ad dollars to go around. And you need somebody who can understand what we are trying to accomplish, whether you're buying. Um, advertorial space, sponsorship space. Uh, if you're trying to appeal to the editors to get a desk, desk side briefing, whatever it is, content strategy should work with those people and say, here's what we want to accomplish. Here's what we are going to measure. What do you think? 
I don't think you, I, I think the days of talking at people or these people working in a silo works anymore. It's one bucket of money. And that's where we say, you know, at the center of this, we still have content strategy. Media strategy can play into how many people are aware of your brand and how many people Google you and how many people work, live, end up on your site. If you have a focused media campaign and you get some PR in a reputable publication, you might see a lift to your website. Or if you run an ad, you might see a lift to your website. If you're not in tune with that and you're not fully aligned and expecting that, you might attribute it to something else. And that's why these things both the paid and the earned are part of the same media strategy. And that's why I bucket them together. Okay. No, I like that. Uh, distribution. This is uh, tough sometimes to be creative about the listeners to this podcast. know I'm a huge advocate for repurposing uh, your content in different formats to reach a broader audience. So maybe different formats that to distribute on social media is part of that. But um, let's talk about syndication and give me some examples, if you would, about syndicating your content. Just how, how can you get it out and figure out where people would find it? So I, I think I think um, syndication is a weird sort of word and, and, and it means a lot of things. In, in, in this particular case, syndication to me, Chris, means that you're making your content share ready and viral ready and can be syndicated across platforms where people will discover it. For example, um, the presentation that you and I are referencing, I have placed on SlideShare. Yes. And I have placed it um, as a as an infographic on Google+. And I placed it um, as an infographic in a uh, different aspect ratio on Twitter and on Facebook. That is a modern form of syndication, and that's a repurposing model that's syndicating across channels, but repurposing might not be syndicating. That is, you know, you might repurpose it for your convention booth, for a Slim Jim, for an IREP on Viva, um, or any number of other things. But in my mind, syndication could be even you have <clears throat> a publication that you know your target audience uses and you buy an advertorial, you buy a one-page advertorial to express a view about some component of health treatment that you believe is valuable to keep that conversation going. So repurposing and syndication are part of ensuring that your content reaches its maximum audience. And that's why it's under content distribution strategy. How will you get that content out, out there? And often, and you know this as well, content is used once and then put away. Yeah. And right. And, and, and really, if, if a, a, a great content strategist will work with a great content distribution team to say, well, how do we repurpose this five times? Well, let's, let's be creative and let's do it in the first round of the manuscript. Um, let's build in the hooks for open graph right into the manuscript template so that we know how it will tweet, show up on Facebook, and um, how we can also get the designers at the exact same time to also develop multiple aspect ratios of the same infographic so it scales well on multiple platforms. I'm, I'm by far not an expert on that. But the way I just asked the question is how I might ask a team that does that. And you, you'd be pretty amazed at how when you give them a bit of information, they will come up with creative ways. And then you have to feed that back, of course, to copy to design, 
to your analytics team, to your media strategy, and you see how we start tying that loop together of a person. And I'm just going to use, you know, you and me as people who know, love, and are in love with creating content and making sure that it reaches the right audience at the right time in the right channel. This is what we think about. And um, that's why that's why that's why we as content strategists think, all right, well, how else can I use this? Because one time just may not be enough. Right. First of all, I mean, going back to the one time thing, a lot of times, you know, we might send out a, an email about a piece of content and then and if you have a good piece of content. Six, you know, even the best content, 60% of the people didn't even open that email. So you should send it more than once, or at least send it to the people who didn't open again and give them another shot. Uh, But what I really like about what you're talking there, and this is something I emphasize a lot, people on this podcast have heard it before, but it's so much easier to think about all the ways you can use a piece of content when you're making it then because often repurposing comes up in the context of look through what we've got and see how we can reuse it, which is hard. (laughs) But if you're thinking ahead, like, Oh, we could do this and this and this. First of all, you save a ton of time, which is money. Like you said, yeah, we go to the designer. We're going to need this in three different formats because we're going to use it here, here and here. And for a designer, let's just take that as an example. Every time a designer files up a or fires up a big graphics program, you know it takes a lot of their time, right? So rather than have them, you know, do that multiple times, they've got it open. Now let's just make it three ways while we're working on it. And they'll love you for that, right? Yeah, and and it makes sense. And if you're on the agency side, you're efficient for the client. If you're on the client side, you're thinking, wow, this is a smart agency team. I appreciate that. And that they are thinking ahead. And, you know, I, I have been many a times on the agency side where I said, look, let's just put it in, put it in the template. And you don't have to populate it. But you know what? It has always worked out. It always works out. And that's part of what that strategy is. And again, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I know enough about it that I can talk with the team and say, how do we repurpose this? And, and, and you can start to see how... God, it, it, it is different strategies, but they all work together on maybe one asset. And that's that's where this emerging role of content strategist comes to. Cool. All right, now we get down to the, um, the bugaboo for a lot of marketers, the engineering strategy, which they never call it that. But, I mean, if you mention IT, then uh, <laughs> the people that marketing in, in uh, life science um, battle with the most are probably IT and R&D, right? So, but... <laughs> um, so, you know, I've worked at companies. And so in my experience, companies, most of them have an IT group and they control a lot of what's possible in terms of the software marketers use, the CRM system, how those things integrate, the automation, the content marketing, or not the, con- the content management system. What do you see in along the engineering lines uh, as the biggest challenge for marketers and, and how do you recommend they address it? Oh, great question. Dude, this is so important. And and I'm glad that we saved this one for last because I, at the medicines company, have a direct report and that direct report is content engineering. Because at one time, we would take our content and we would do everything we could and then we would hand it to IT and IT would, you know, do an effective job of posting it. Content engineering is, is a is a new role and a content engineer should be in the in the in the room, you know, in the, in that war room in 
when you're planning out content strategy because they are not just a pair of hands to do what you want them to do. They should be part of what you want to accomplish. If you get these technologists in there who are content engineers and you're talking about something and you say, we want to do X, Y, and Z, because of their familiarity and their deep knowledge of those channels, they are not just doers and executors. They're part of your team and you say, this is what we want to accomplish. They're going to say, have you considered these things? And have you considered doing these other things? And, you know, you may not realize it, but you can also add the following. And this is the role that is confusing to most people because now they used to consider the technology people only on a need-to-know basis. And they didn't really need to know up until the point where they just had to get it up online. But there's a reason why on my team, my first hire was content engineering because we're going to go live in a multi-channel world. We need somebody who has a deep code level understanding of how these channels work and how they don't work and how you have tools and platforms, anything from Marketo to Hootsuite, um, that you're going to have to try to determine how these things all play together. Your content engineer is somebody who understands marketing, understands code, and understands technology systems at a level that says, I I'm a partner. I am your partner in this. And if they know what your intention is, I have never seen any scenario where a content engineer who was on your team participating in marketing strategy didn't make it better. They make it better because up until now, it was considered that they weren't strategists. They were just tacticians executing on a strategy that you planned. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like this. It's sort of like a team of strategists who are planning a Broadway musical and they write a score without ever consulting musicians, the people who actually have their hands on the string and the brass. And then they wonder why it doesn't sound right or it is it was only mediocre. Your engineer is somebody that knows exactly how these instruments work and consulting them and asking them what you think what they think would make the music soar higher uh, and, and, the, and, and more impactful is really what their role is. And it is an emerging role. It is the emerging role that I see as a missing link on so many teams. And I think that this is the role where people are going to now scramble for these unicorns who understand marketing, who understand and take the time to understand content, but also understand the technology platforms. These are your unicorns. Go out and catch them now. Yeah, good idea. And another beautiful metaphor about the uh, you know writing a score and never talking to the musicians. <laughs> That's yeah, because they're the people that are making it happen. So I like that. Um, yeah. So and that's and going out and grabbing these people. So this that's a perfect segue to um, this topic about something that wasn't on your slide, but essential for all the things we just talked about, and that is the people. So you just mentioned like go out and grab these. Um, would you call those Martech people, or I'm just curious? If um, well, in here, I, I think I think sometimes you would, um, but I'd like to stress uh, an important point, and and this is something that um, I, I believe that content strategy can work with content marketing, but not all content is made in service to marketing. Right. Content strategy might might be working on your internal human resources insights publication or 
um, some sort of other insight content that might need to be um, developed on the science side, right? There's a lot of, there is a lot of information that's generated in pharma about science that is not meant for marketing. I mean, what we think of it usually is because we think of it from a commercial marketing perspective. And in that point, you have a content strategist who's making content for marketing purposes and it's content marketing. And in that case, it would be MarTech. And I agree with you. Um, but our content engineer is not necessarily working on marketing. And so I think it's fair to say in many scenarios, uh, it is MarTech because it is marketing based technology, but I would also argue that there are a lot of internal systems that your content engineer can understand to make better um, and more efficiently uh, uh, run and deliver that content, um, even if it's not content made for marketing purposes. So fair to say in, in most scenarios, yeah, but I would argue that they are uh, channel and technology specialists um, and they are more digital than information technology, right? They, they are, they come out of the same um, uh, area as chief digital officers uh, and, and less uh, from IT officers. Okay. Good to know. This is all, you know, the engineering strategy. I mean, I'm just catching up on, I mean, I, I feel like I know what MarTech is roughly, but it's not a, it's not a phrase I've heard used a lot in life science yet, but I, you know, I follow a couple of people who are MarTechies, I guess you would call them. All right. So life science companies in the early stage of this maturity curve for content marketing, we're going back to people now in a more broader sense. And, um, we had a little discussion before I'm, I'm curious how we get from where we are to where we'd like to be along that maturity curve, knowing or keeping in mind that the destination keeps moving away from us. <laughs> uh, and I'll put a link. There's an, I, I found a, an article and maybe you sent it to me, but I, when I was browsing around your slide shares, I think I came across something, but um, so how, how do we set up that transition? And I guess, core to that is, you know, what are we looking for when we're hiring people to make all those things happen? Well, I'll tell you what I look for. And you, you, you know, you, you may, you may look for something similar. Um, and, um, other people may be looking for different things. I, I'm looking for doers. I'm looking for people who make websites, uh, in their free time. I, I'm looking for people who, are My Little Pony fans and have created a My Little Pony fan page and My Little Pony podcast and maybe the the Brony, um, I don't know, YouTube channel. I'm looking for people who are experimenting with technology because they are naturally curious and passionate people. I think we would not hire a design director who said, you know, Chris, if you hire me, I, I'm going to learn Photoshop on your time and you're going to teach me how to do that. Because there, there's no reason for that. You wouldn't hire a design director who didn't know the basic tools of making designs and creating art. You would expect that they would know Photoshop. So why would we hire people who are going to be your social media strategists who haven't taken the time to build a social following? Why would we, even in your case, look at what you've done with this podcast? If somebody were to say, oh, we really need a podcast and audio strategy, well, you know, I, I know Chris, he, he's, he's built his own podcast and, you know, that takes a level of curiosity and, and he's already taken the time to teach himself. So we don't have to teach him, right? If, if every piece of technology that we're going to use, I have to pay you on my time to learn, 
that's going to be that's going to be a slow slow go sending you conferences teaching you stuff so I, i'm looking for people who are self-motivated and honestly i don't really care about the content like i said i use my little pony as a as an example i i, I really don't care what the content is but when a resume is passing my desk I've asked my HR team to take a look to see if that person has a personal website, podcast, blog, uh, strong Twitter following. doesn't matter what the topic is. And if I don't see it, um, I want to know, are you a curious, intellectually curious person who is going to go out and experiment with content channels? Because if you're not, it's going to be an uphill battle. You don't really love this. And don't do it if you don't really love it. So that's where I think you need to find these unicorns. And sometimes you do have to nurture them. You know, your MarTech example um, might be a person in engineering who's really curious and passionate and willing to put the time and energy and says, I'll come to your meetings. I'll do whatever I have to do. And they are passionate and curious. And some you, we all have to invest in our employees, right? Send them to conferences. Seriously. Yeah. Send people to conferences. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I want to make clear the point you're talking to is send them to conferences that that are not where you are exhibiting, right? You're talking about yeah. sending your marketing people not to do marketing but to learn about marketing. Yeah. And and ask them, what podcasts are you listening to? You know, what are you listening to at work? What what books are you reading? What Twitter followers? What's what's in your RSS? What are you, what are you subscribing to in, you know, Google News? Find those people who are curious and reading stuff, and they will bring things to you that you never thought of. And then, you know, look internally. Maybe there's somebody internally that already is passionate and curious and maybe has not been nurtured. Um, nurturing those people who already know your business and know the people and know how to get things done is also a huge benefit. So we always think of hiring outside, and it, it doesn't always happen that way. So... I think sometimes you can you can nurture your own talent, but if you're bringing in external talent, um, they need to pass a minimum level of curiosity and achievement, or else you're going to be training them the whole way. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think in uh, in life sciences, most marketers come from the science side, um, but certainly there must be tech people who you know get curious about what's going on in marketing and. Maybe they have some creative storytelling bone in their body and they, they want to play with that or have been playing with that on the side um, and are aware of things that you haven't discovered yet. So, um, yeah, I know that sounds great. Um, I was going to come back to we OK on time. Yeah, yeah, no, we're good. I'm having a good time. You're a good interviewer, Thank Chris. Thank you. I was, um, I was going to come back to visual content because we are. You already talked about um, storytelling and who the story's for, um, and then, I, I, when I was looking at some of your presentations on visual content and telling stories through pictures at a car dealer, and we sort of talked about this, <laughs> like telling stories on an airplane. <laughs> This is similar. So now I understand what you were thinking about, like um, using those pictures. To, and uh, for me, I'm, I'm just going to let you comment because I probably don't have an actual question here. But for me now, having listened to you and, and looked at that, it's really what you need to do is 
again, get into the head of your customer and go, what do they care about on an airplane? What do they care about on a car? <laughs> Some of those things in the slide about the car, and I'll try to link to this. Um, I will link to this. I'll find this, the slide deck and put a specific link to that slide. Um, because those questions that a car buyer is asking, maybe they're so obvious we don't even think about it. So like, will I get to listen to music easily in my car or leg room or whatever? I mean, you show those pictures, but people are looking for things, even if they're not consciously asking, like, where do I plug in my phone in your car? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you mean by telling pictures with stories, I guess, is trying to figure out, you know, how to answer people's questions um, with a picture. Yeah. And, and, and anticipating what what will be the tipping point to answering their question and, and um under and, and here's the thing and, and and understanding that the word persona is a word that's thrown around a lot what's the person in persona and i once had a client when i was on the agency side and we went i think we had six or seven personas that's, that's a lot but not overly huge for a global campaign um and the client you know, listened and nodded and said, we want to go down to one persona. I said, what do you mean one persona? And I knew I wasn't long for this brand because I was, I was losing my patience as, you know, and, and you know, you, sometimes the customer's always right, but you know, it's frustrating. And I was like, well, and I said, and I remember in the meeting, the, the, the customer said, we went, you know, seven personas and we want to get this down to one. And I said, for the whole planet, like one person is going to represent your whole customer decision on the entire planet. Think about that. Really, this where you want to narrow down and save some money? But they did. And they got it down to one persona, person who wants to buy our product, right? And, and when we think these are pre some of these are prescription brands, who is that person? Is it a patient or is it a caregiver? And they say, we had to get it down to one persona. Well, <laughs> Well, which is it? it oh, well, it was a it was a consumer campaign, so it'll be the patient. Okay, Th those are those are tough things, but you know when you think about what car companies do, car companies show you the vehicle, and you go, oh, okay, I want a, I want an SUV, right? Or I want a, a what we used to call the milk truck, you know, the Toyota Sienna, you know, the, the the minivan, or we want a sports car that's convertible. Those are those are instantly recognizable. You know exactly what they are. But when you get into the category of CUV, which is what I drive, I drive a Toyota Sienna. There's the CUV, that's the Toyota Sienna, and then there's the CUV that's more expensive, which is the Mercedes version. The picture of the Toyota Sienna is a lot more utilitarian, um, whereas the picture of the Mercedes might be in front of a mansion, <laughs> right? And it sends a subtle message, but it is fully... Um, by design, right? This is car companies are really good with marketing and advertising. They've been doing it a long time consistently, yep. you know, right? And you think about it. So what's important when I'm looking at the Sienna? <laughs> There's no wrong guess here, but how many cup holders it has? Right. That's actually right. That, But when somebody's buying, I don't know, a Lamborghini, uh, how many cup holders it has isn't really probably the big tipping yeah. point. Between getting a Hyundai or a Lamborghini. Right. It's not really there. But you're selling a lifestyle. And those are the components of the photography that go into what you show at any given point. But also, where is it? Is it aspirationally, I want to be the Mercedes owner? Or is it utilitarian, I'm getting a Hyundai because it's cheap? 
Um, that's all articulated in your photography. And I think what happens in pharma, where the big failing is, is we fall back on stock art of people smiling and friendly. Uh, it's like they took the stock photo art book of well-lit, happy people. They turn it upside down, they shake it, and they go, don't let any of them look sick. Yeah, right? I mean, that's and what I'm thinking. So they, they all want to look happy and healthy. And they do. Look at pharma websites, right? Um, there are actually real people who have worked on a particular drug. There are real patients. We know how to find them, and yet we fall back on stock art for any number of reasons. Stock photography, rather. This is where we can do better. We can do better. And, and I don't necessarily know the answer, but what I'd like to be able to do is free up design strategy to say, you know what? If we gave you access to patients, to the real healthcare professionals, to actual prescribers, patients, and caregivers, would that change the art that you would put on this site? And I'd like to know how. And I'd like to put it to them. Because I, honestly, Chris, I can't answer that question, but I'd like to be able to say, as a fellow strategist, would that change what you put there or would you put that same stock art there? And I think that that's, that's an important component that we really need to shake up the tree right now because our stuff doesn't look credible. It just looks very blandly neutral, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we're fooling anybody anymore. Yeah, it's probably not. I'm not you know, specifically a pharma marketer, so, but I'm get from, I certainly see uh, pharma advertisements. It's, it's hard to differentiate between yeah. the people that you're looking at for one thing or another. And, you know, the funny thing is, is I worked on a campaign a couple of years ago where um, they didn't buy exclusive rights to the stock <laughs> photos. And we saw these photos turn up in other places for other pharma brands because they were so neutral to be pleasant and brand people go, yeah, that's safe. Go with that. That's good. That'll clear, that'll clear legal. And the reality is, is for the same amount of money or less, you probably could have shot original photos that nobody would have and would actually speak at a level of truth that is right now um, just not present in stock photos. Yes. And, uh, and to my mind, again, not a designer, maybe save you some time because I'll tell you from, from my perspective, running a podcast and having, you know, blogging occasionally, uh, looking through images to find the right one, is hugely time-consuming for me. Maybe designers have a better, you know, nose for images, but I just continually frustrated you know, looking through pictures and pictures and pictures to where you're numb, um, and you think, "Wow, oh, gosh, we could have set up a, a shoot maybe and and gotten great images that we can use for a long time." Yeah, but Chris, you're not you're a, you're a solopreneur. You're not a guy that's on a uh, on a campaign that's multiple multiple years or even with multiple zeros against yeah. it you know you're a guy right you're working in your basement by yourself trying to do it all yourself we were talking about um maybe a big brand a medium-sized brand or even a blockbuster brand they have means and resources yeah. and well right you know they're they're constantly um funded you're not so i don't i don't i don't think that the solopreneur comparison to yourself don't be hard on yourself um, i think you do the best you can with, with the resources you have but i think i think brands can do better and i think you know uh the idea of just clearing the bar to get it approved to get it up is 
Um, maybe it'll check the box, but we're not doing checkbox marketing. We're trying to motivate people to take an action, and that's what marketing is about. It's about behavior change. It's about somebody to go, I thought – there's only three types of behavior change, right? And you really – you sit down and you think, well, how do I get somebody to um, – so there's three times. First one is you're not using my product. Can I get you to try my product? Right? Yep. Next, next one is um, you're using a product. Um, and, uh, I, I want you to switch to my product, the behavior change. Um, and the next one is I, um, I, you're using my product and I want you to use more of my product. That's number two, right? Number one was those two combined. And then number three is I want you to tell somebody about my product. Yeah. Right? Those are the three behavior changes that you want. And those are the three behaviors. Not one message goes across all of them because, right, one is introductory and induction. The other is... Um, using, you know, getting people to use more of your product, and the other is uh, evangelism. No one message travels across all three of those. No one photo travels across all three of those. No one infographic. Um, so I think what you have to recognize with one persona for the entire planet is not going to work. We have to become way more invested in our customers and what they need and not beat our chest about who we are but really get down to what they need, and if we solve their problem, how do we make make it um, make it into their stream so that their problem gets solved with our product? That's the real marketing challenge of the day. And we we're gonna there's no Super Bowl um, solution anymore. You know, you're gonna get a few people on Twitter, you're gonna get a few people on Facebook, you're gonna get a few people on different channels, and you have to spend your limited budget and time wisely. And I think. Um, I've answered like five questions that you didn't ask, so I'll just stop talking. No, but that was great. I mean, that was a perfect wrap up to this whole conversation, buddy. <laughs> like, I, I'm thinking there's nothing I can ask or say next that's going to put a better ending on this conversation because <laughs> you just wrapped up you know, what this is all about. Um, I'm going to link to the slide share you originally shared with me um, yeah. and um, the slide about the car uh, photos just because. And is there any... Um, any place else people should go to learn more about you or what you're doing? Yeah, man. Um, if you go to buddyscalera.com, it links to my Twitter and my YouTube and all the places where I'll be speaking and things like that and juggling kittens. Um, so, yeah, go to buddyscalera.com. You can find me on Twitter at buddyscalera and it cross links to all the other cool stuff that I'm I'm doing. And I'll, I'll link back to this show, Chris, so that people can rediscover you if they haven't discovered you yet thank you very much this has been a fantastic conversation you've been very generous with your time on a friday evening so uh, buddy scalera <laughs> thank you so much for for all this valuable information thank you very much and i and I, I i really appreciate the time that you gave me and that ladies and gentlemen concludes this episode of chris connor hosting life science marketing radio you can find Chris at LifeScienceMarketingRadio.com. Listen to his podcast or just get to know Chris a little bit better from his blog. I'll be seeing you soon on LifeScienceMarketingRadio.com. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. We covered a lot of ground in that conversation. I'm sure you found at least one thing you can take away from it, whether it's focusing on customer questions setting goals for your metrics, working with content engineers, or something else. Hey, this podcast 
every episode is a lot of fun for me, and I hope it is for you as well. If you are listening, you understand the unique value of audio content for creating a special connection with your audience. I want to do more of that, so I'm going beyond creating this content for myself and my business and expanding my services to create audio content for clients. There are lots of ways you can use this, but a good way to dip your toes into the audio content pool would be to produce audio content in conjunction with an event. Your key opinion leaders, presenters, and attendees are all good sources to help you tell your brand story. And this can be before, during, after an event. You can even use content you create this year in your marketing of the event for next year. If that's of interest to you, email me, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com, and we will set up a time to talk about it. The podcast continues to grow, and thanks to you telling your friends, like I've asked for many, many weeks, we recently passed 15,000 downloads, and I am very grateful for every one of those. So please keep that up, tell your friends, and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Bye-bye.